Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Big Brain Barrier podcast. Dedicated to discussing, validating, and affirming the barriers that may come in your big brain path. We're really excited to have you here. My name is Michal. And my name is Rima. Sit back, relax, and let us light up your temporal lobes hot pink. How are you today, Rima? Mm, I'm doing okay. Uh, I have a lot of deadlines coming up, but we are swimming, not drowning, you know? How are you doing, Mikhail? I am doing pretty okay as well. Classes are about to start for me. I'm a little bit excited and a little bit nervous, so it's going to be interesting. I hope everybody listening is having an all right day. Hope you got your coffee in ya. Hopefully the sun is shining. Not in Canada. JK. <laughs> JK. No, it's oh. shining. It's out there. It's <laughs> cold, but it's out there. It's fine. I'm so excited for today's episode. What do you think, Yurima? I'm actually also very excited. For those of us that joined us in the last episode, we discussed what it was like getting into university and how mine and Mikhail's experiences were very different, but we had a lot of the same feelings. And this week, we're going to be talking about what it is like to be in university or an overview of the university experience. Absolutely. We're going to talk about the transitioning into university. We're going to talk about building schedules, how to manage your work and your schooling. And as well as we're going to dive in into some statistics and different ways of dealing with mental health. So in our last episode, we talked about all the stresses that lead up to getting the offer of admission. We talked about how that was a very stressful time. It caused a lot of feelings of worthlessness. There was a lot of valuing ourselves based on our grades. And this time, we wanted to talk about the actual university experience. But while Mikhail and I were talking and discussing the content that would be in this episode, we came across a really interesting fact. Uh, we try to provide you with content that is supported by a lot of different studies because at the end of the day, Mikhail and I are in science and nobody really listens to you in science if you don't have any evidence and nobody really listens to you anywhere if you don't have any evidence. Um, and so that's why while Mikhail and I were looking at the statistics and while we were looking at the different trends of university, we found something interesting. We found a very, very common question that was asked most and foremost, am I too old to start a bachelor's degree. I'm 25. Is it okay to start my university journey? Is it okay to embark on my big brain path at 25? And even though 25 was just the most common age that was asked, it is absolutely okay to start your post-secondary education at any age. There has been trends in the recent years of decreased enrollment age in North America. According to educationdata.org, they have stated that the enrollment age between 1992 and 2007 has decreased from the age of 25 to 22. The trend is even more significant when it comes to international students. Now, of course, because our economy is developing, the requirements for higher educations are increasing it might feel like there is a big pressure to follow post-secondary degree right out of high school. But I'm here to tell you that it is absolutely okay, if not actually preferable, 
to start your post-secondary degree after further exploring what your ultimate goal is. It should be a decision that is not just based on your outer circles because I'm sure a lot of people that I've talked with have joined post-secondary because it was something that their family told them to do. Whether you are a domestic student or if you're an international student, it's your familial pressures that are pushing you towards pursuing higher education. Finding out what you want to pursue your education in is hard at any age. I remember when I enrolled into university at 18, I have done a lot of jumping around. I've mentioned it briefly in our first episode, but I jumped around from faculty to faculty like nobody's business. I did a Spider-Man across this whole faculty. (laughs) So I was in bio, I was in chem, I was in math, I was in Mandarin. And then when pharmacology took me in, I decided that it's my home to stay. But it definitely takes a little bit of work. And even after you've done that kind of soul searching before accepting your offer, it is completely okay to go and see that the program was not something that you expected. Explore your options. Travel if you can. Talk with your friends and family. Do a little bit of research. Ask previous students. And it is completely, completely all right to go at your own pace. When you go on your big brain path, The only person that you should suffice is yourself. And it's hard. Something that's really kind of sad is that I think, um, Mikael, you might remember, there were people from our year that were taking years off or like that were going to take like a semester off and join in the winter semester. And there was this immediate labeling of like, wow, that's irresponsible by some of the people that we knew. And so this is a very, very crappy habit. And I'm just going to go out there and say that while Mikal has said, yes, you can start at any age, and it's such a good idea to know who you are as a person before you enter something big like university. And I completely agree with that. But I'm also going to add on to that, and I'm going to say that judging someone for the age that they started university or saying something is a bad decision because it's not exactly what you would do, that isn't appropriate. And we do not stand for that. No, ma'am. No, sir. Nuh-uh. We are in this institution together as students to improve ourselves and follow our goals. We need to support each other. Age is just a number. It's really not a race of who finishes first. I have friends who finished in three years. I have friends who finished in six years. I have friends who joined at 18. I have friends who joined at 16. And I have friends who joined at 45. And it is completely completely okay we're all learning together we're all working to improve our society as a whole period we need to focus on the common goal because everyone there is there to learn and that someone there to learn that's awesome absolutely and taking a year off traveling exploring investigating that is such an amazing amazing time i did not get to explore until after my second year I swear, I feel like the first two years of my degree were completely, I wouldn't want to say wasted because I learned what I liked and what I didn't like, but I felt that up until I got to travel and do a semester overseas abroad in China, that's when I really found out the kind of person that I am and really found the motivation to continue with my degree and identify my goals. Another quick side note, If it is possible for you to take a semester abroad through a program, highly recommend. 11 out of 10, please do. 
it's amazing. It's even there's many scholarships, many programs that you can apply to in many, many different universities. Just keep your eyes open for that. Mm hmm. Just to sort of really sum that up into one really quick sentence, when it comes to timelines and the times that you are supposed to be done a university degree or the times that you're supposed to start something or when you're supposed to start your career, those are the most arbitrary timelines ever. Those deadlines weren't even created by people that matter. Honestly, honestly, if we're really, really going to say that you can only start your degree at 18, otherwise you're behind, it doesn't really make sense. There's been people that have started at 18, didn't really vibe with it, dropped out and did something cooler. There has been people that couldn't start at 18 and had to take care of some other things before they actually started university. And then they started university and then they had the most wholesome degree ever. And then there's also people like me who I was 18 and I joined university right off the bat. I took a bunch of courses that I didn't really vibe with. And my first year was just lifeless. And when the thing that you spend about 16 hours a day doing is lifeless, well, then you become lifeless too. And that, that isn't really a good way to live. And so go at your own pace, figure things out on your own the average age is decreasing. And that might be because of economic value, that might be because of market demands, but it's such a good idea to figure out who you are, to be a stable personality, and then enter university. And we'll see more of that later on in the episode. So while Mikal and I were kind of discussing uh, the times to go into university, she came up with actually a really good way to think about things. Uh, Mikal, do you want to share that with everyone? Absolutely. So it's very important that we try to shift our way of viewing university from a rule book into more of a system. We have different ways of navigating different systems as individuals. Same applies to university. So if everybody takes their own view of navigating through the university system in different way, that is absolutely a-okay. Something that might work for your friend might not necessarily work for you and vice versa. It is absolutely great to have your own take on the university system and getting through classes that you enjoy. So sort of looping around and going back to part where we got our offer of admission, one of the next most nerve-wracking activities that we will have to do is making a schedule. Now, this is a little bit different because this is the first time that we're actually doing that. Before, in high school, you get to select your options or your electives, and the school makes the schedule for you. And now, you are in complete control of that schedule. And so, Mikal has some pretty good tips about uh, making a schedule that she's learned over the years. Would you like to share? Absolutely. As somebody who is naturally disorganized in my daily life... And coming from high school where I've just developed my existing schedule, it was really nice that that kind of thing was provided for me. So when I got accepted and all my friends would ask me if I made my schedule yet, hey, Michal, did you make your schedule yet? I was like, we need to make our schedule. What kind of responsibility is this? I was like, why are people asking me about my schedule when... It's just a schedule, fam. It's no biggie. You just don't <laughs> you just no add don't you just add classes, Mikal? Yeah. Planning out your academic schedule. If you've never done it before, it can be so confusing. You have to write it down. It's a whole process. But 
here are some tips that I learned as somebody who's pretty much chaos and kind of how to organize your schedule to allow for the different circumstances that you might have as different students. So first thing first, when building a schedule, you want to make sure that you're hitting all your degree requirements. Sometimes the programs are not really upfront with what courses you might need to take. And sometimes you need to have a little bit of digging. You need to find out how many credits you need to take in mandatory classes for your degree. You need to find out how many credits you need to take for your electives. And honestly, if you can't find them online, go contact your advisor within the first two weeks of schools before the drop ad deadline, which is the date of where you can drop courses without getting a penalty and getting a refund back. So absolutely, that should be the first step. Find out what courses you need to take. Um, one of the things that you also want to watch out for here is ideally you start at least a month in advance. And the reason that we start this early in advance is because we want to make sure that there are enough seats for us to be in the class that we need to be in. And so the best idea is to sort of start planning these things early on, see what courses need to be taken as per the degree requirements. And once you know that, you know what courses you have to take for your first year. And then you can basically plan accordingly so that you can enroll because one of the issues that does come up is that you might have a course that you think is absolutely perfect for you. And so do 500 other students and all the seats are full in that 500 student class. That's when we run into other obstacles where you have to keep asking the prof, personally email them to let you in. All those things come after the class has been filled up. And so best idea, get going early, find out what your degree requirements are. I absolutely agree with what you said by emailing your prof personally and trying to find out if they could let you in. I'm going to say this, you cannot be shy as a student, especially if you're going into a bigger university. Because I went to a very big university, the University of Alberta, with over 30,000 students, when I got accepted into university, majority of the classes I wanted to enroll in were full. Even though I started making my schedule a month before classes actually began, all the essential requirements that I needed to take were packed. So I straight up just slid into the DMs of the admissions office and was like, hello, excuse me, um, y'all are full. Can you please do something? And 90% of the time, they would just open another seat. They actually opened a whole lab section for my butt to get in there. So most universities are actually accommodating. And don't be shy. Nobody is going to think that you are too pushy or, or a simp or doing anything like that. If you need to take that course, you better let them know because you're paying them money and they need to accommodate your degree requirements. If, it's, if they can't let you in, it's on them, not on you. But it is your responsibility to make sure that you got a seat. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things uh, is when you're kind of getting nervous about emailing a prof and you know, you're just worried about, for me, it was, I'm just worried about being an inconvenience on someone. The phrase that I said to myself that would sort of help me go through that was, listen, all you're trying to do is get an education. So if you have to send an email and feel a little bit like an inconvenience, that's fine. Because ultimately, you're just trying to learn. Not a bad thing. It's literally the professor's job to help you and make sure that you get the education. So even if you might feel like an inconvenience, remember, 
you're not an inconvenience. You're helping the profs do their job. And profs have no way of telling that there is a student that can't get into their class. They have no way of telling that. So unless you say, hey, I can't get in, can I please have a seat? They can't help you. So it's okay to ask for help. It's kind of necessary to ask for help as well. Because if you don't ask for help, that's on you. So ask for help. It's always great. Uh, there's many different resources that are there to help you. Take advantage of them. Find out what they are. Let's talk about transitioning the grind. Rima, what the heck? Tell me about some of the studying habits, what you saw that worked for you in high school that no longer worked for you in university. What is something that you can do to change it? How do you kick bad habits to the curb? Because, you know, in high school, I was notorious for do today, do today attitude. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's just get into it then. When we are in high school, what happens is that we have certain study habits that we think have worked so far. Now, we need to keep in mind that in high school, we have about six months to complete uh, a class. And in university, that changes to four months or a little bit less than four months because that includes the exam period. Uh, along with that, we also need to consider that the content in university that we're being taught, uh, especially in second, third, and fourth year, is going to be higher level content that'll take some time to digest and it's learn. thick material. It's tick. So in high school, what's going to happen is that we will have a lot of people that will just kind of read their notes and they'll understand and then they'll read it if, like a couple times and they'll just know all the content. That is honestly a strategy that you can use in high school and it might help you get by. However, university is a different ball game, meaning that the way that we grind in high school and the way that we grind in university is different. And that's, again, because of the speed, because of the environment, because of what you're being taught. And so let's get into some of the study habits. Now, these are basically backed up with some of the things that I've learned in my psychology degree, because when you learn about cognitive psychology, you also learn about learning and memory. Learning and memory has been studied for decades and decades. And basically what we have found is that some study techniques work while others just don't. And um, we've discovered some of the brain pathways and some of the ways that our memory works. And so we know how to manipulate it best to our advantage. So, for example, rereading your notes, just like we did in high school, not a good way to remember things. It's just not how it works anymore. However, rewriting your notes, which requires recalling them a few times and also going over them a few times. And it's a little bit more active because you're writing things down. It's better. When we talk about flashcards, this is recall, which is basically just asking yourself a bunch of questions. These are actually proven to be very nice if you make your flashcards properly. Now, we can get in later on into other episodes about how to make proper flashcards. There's also tons of resources on the internet and YouTube on how you can go about doing that to make sure that you are using flashcards properly. Quick, I know that this is an right now a non-monetized episode but shout out to quizlet oh my lord literally a glory Ugh. i've used quizlet many times and yeah i would totally agree with that statement yeah flashcards definitely active recall a great way to study it has been shown to improve grades consistently among university students another study tip is make study groups now this 
is something that is often said. Yeah, you should make a study group and study groups help. However, there are good and bad sides to this. So some of the good sides to creating a study group is suppose that you are in a biology class or a pharmacology class and you accidentally missed a lecture. Well, your study group can sort of give you some of the notes that were in that lecture. Or suppose you didn't understand this one concept, but then later someone in your study group actually went and asked the prof about what the answer to that question was. That person can explain that information now to the rest of your study group. Uh, There's lots of opportunities to collaborate. Also, if you see that your study group has times where they have set up where they study for things, uh, that helps a lot because at least that's an allocated time where other people are relying on you. So you show up and you study and it kind of is like it keeps you on track and it keeps you on schedule. However, there are some downsides to creating study groups because they find that when you increase the number of people in a study group, the productivity also decreases. So a little bit of that inverse relationship stuff happening. Um, And the reason is now you have a bunch of people that are slowly becoming friends that are in the same class that can now bond over being in the same class. And now we are at Party City because university students, as much as they love learning, another thing they like is partying and joking around. And so We want to make sure that our study group is the most effective and it is a learning tool for us, which is why what we want to do is make sure that we're creating it properly. And so study groups can form in classes. So a professor, I've had multiple professors in the past that have said, oh, if you want to form a study group, here's the forum you can post and make study groups. You can also know some people from your high school or know some people um, just from wherever you live or other Um, places that you go that are also in that class and you can just you know impromptu make one and then there are also other ways to make a study group which is to just like post on like the Facebook page for your university that you're looking for a study group or something like that that being said you want to make sure that the study group is not just a chance for you to have fun and relax but also a study opportunity so those would be some of the study strategies now if you are interested in knowing some of our study strategies over the years what we've done what has worked what hasn't worked we can definitely do further episodes and dedicate pieces and bits to studying so let us know on our instagram page if that would be something that you're interested in so now that we've talked about different studying hacks and different studying techniques, let's touch on the different pressures that come with post-secondary. We're talking different pressures that come from grades, maintaining a certain GPA, some social pressures. So Rima, tell me a little bit about how the GPA pressure and the pressure to maintain a certain GPA affected your undergrad journey and your state as a student. Um, Yeah, sure. So basically, when I first joined university, I thought that I was this top dog IB student. And that's why I could beat uh, the curve. And so uh, I'm just going to go into it really quick. So they say that the bell curve doesn't exist. um, And that the that universities don't actually curve. But what they do is that all your marks are on a normal distribution and then professors look for natural breaks in that distribution to assign grades. Now, um, basically what that means is that how far you are from the average mark in the class determines your grade. So suppose that the average was 70% on a midterm and you got 80. Because you are so far from the average, that 80 
is equivalent to a 4.0 in that class. But suppose that the average was 60% and you got 67 because you're so close to that average and the prof has set that average at suppose a letter B grade or a 3.0. What that means is that because you're so close to class average, your grade is a B or a 3.0. Now this can kind of get funky when we have class averages at 85%. So suppose that the class average on a test was 85% and then basically you got an 87. Now an 87, excellent mark should be approximately an A. However, because you're so close to it, because you're so close to the 80% average, what that means is that you are more close to the A minus B plus range rather than the A range. Uh, and so that can get kind of scary. However, it can also be a really good thing. Suppose the class average is 30% and you got 50% on the final. Congratulations, you might have scored yourself an A knowing approximately 50% of the content on that final. Separating students on the normal distribution is definitely a thing that can be a good thing or a bad thing. That being said, because I was an IB student, I felt like I would beat all these people and be way above average. And that was because, well, I was IB. I was smarter than everybody, of course. And so um, that was not a good way to think because I got my butt handed to me my first year. I felt like I didn't need to work hard or study until like a few nights before the test. And basically, um, I thought that my memory could just sort of like, you know, ride me through and I didn't understand how competitive everything was and how competitive everybody else was, which is why I always ended up probably around average or a couple percent below average, which the prof set at a 2.7 or a B minus GPA. And that, that is how I ended up with a terrible first year GPA. And because at the time, when I was going through first year, I felt like my marks were the thing that determined how valuable I was or how smart I was, how great I was. Because my GPA determined my self-worth and my GPA ended up being low, my self-esteem also plummeted. And so I had to do a lot of changing in the way that I thought and also the way in which I perceived a grade and how much I let a grade stress me out. Like my GPA determining my self-worth got me into a very, very terrible headspace and it was a very bad time. So I had to literally restructure the way that I thought so that I could be okay. And that that was a very scary thing for me to do. Um, it was also something kind of scary to go through. There is a pressure to maintain a certain GPA if you want to get into honors programs, if you want to get into a second degree after, all those things require a certain GPA. And what I think the one piece of advice that I would say, just remember your GPA does not determine your self-worth or don't let it determine your self-worth because it can get hard. That way of thinking can put you in such a bad headspace that it's almost, it feels almost impossible to get out. And I felt that way. And I sort of pulled myself out. And honestly, like that was one of the toughest things that I've ever done in my life. Pulling myself out of that mentality, pulling myself out of that thought pattern was something that was very necessary, which is why if I could give one piece of advice to people going to university, do not let your GPA stress you out to the point that it determines your self-worth or to the point that it doesn't let you enjoy the rest of your life or the rest of the good things that are in your life. There are lots of ways that we can sort of make that happen for ourselves. We'll be discussing those in future episodes. 
for example, how we can take care of ourselves, how we can reframe the way that we're thinking so that it's not um, that GPA determines our self-worth. I feel that my GPA struggles were also very evident, but per use, I'm running on Middle Eastern time, so I was late to the GPA concerning party. Because I wasn't certain of what program I wanted to join my first two years, I pretty much just kind of took a, eh, it's a B, it's good enough for me type of attitude, which is, it was enough for me to get into the specializations program, which is a little bit different than honors, but it really depends on the university that you're going to. Some universities rank specializations above honors. Some universities put specializations below a bachelor's. So it's all different. So my first two years, I kind of just stayed afloat in my classes. And then when I found out what I wanted to do at the end of my second year, I really needed to double down and I did the math and I really needed to strive to get a high GPA. We're talking high threes, almost fours in the in my last two years to get into the program I wanted. So I I needed to shift my look from not caring about my GPA at all to really caring about my GPA. And then life happened in third year and I got an F. I have an F on my transcript from my undergraduate institution in a course that it was an elective course, but it was still offered by the department I was in. So I thought my career was over. I thought that I'm not going to get to do anything, especially as somebody who wants to go into academia. I was like, how am I going to get into academia if I can't do academia right now? And y'all, let me tell you, it's okay to get an F. It's okay to get a bad mark. You have many chances to prove yourself to your professors and you have many chances to redeem yourself through other classes. So while it can be a very stressful experience, it is definitely something that you can recover from. So I think um, one of the things that I'm going to say right off the bat is the fact that when Mikal says that it is something that you can recover from, I think her life is a very good example of recovering from things. So currently, she is a PhD student in a competitive program in the States, and she's gotten scholarships and she's gotten herself taken care of. When it comes to the science bits, she works very hard for her degree. She's on to do some very great things in the future. So yes, her third year, she got an F, but she did recover. So when she says that you can recover from mistakes, that's because she's proven that you can. Girl, I appreciate your support so much. It means a lot. And it is true. It's all in your mindset. If you change your mindset, you can flip your entire world. And let me tell you, getting an F can be devastating it could it's pressured i was supposed to start a research course the next semester after getting an f and for some reason i looked at my schedule and i saw that i'm not enrolled in it the day of the drop ed deadline the admin office closes at four i saw at 10 o'clock in the morning that i'm still not enrolled i went to the course coordinator in person i asked her what is going on and she looked me in the eye and she said we're not enrolling you in this course. You got an F. And I was like, what do you mean? 
She's like, I'm, I'm not enrolling you in this course. We're doing you a favor by not enrolling you in a course. We don't think you can handle it. I literally sat down at her office and told her that I belong here. This is where I need to be. And it was literally by chance and honestly a blessing that her office had a window. And as soon as I said that I need to be here, the sun shone on me. And uh. <laughs> it, the sun. God, the sun is that shined you? On me. <laughs> Literally, it felt like a movie scene. It was such a main character moment. Y'all, if you're going through a period of bad grades, you can always just ask and be persistent and show that you want to be here. And profs will see that. And own up to it. Own up to it. Put your put your money where your mouth is. Double down. Study hard. And you can get anywhere you want to get. Getting bad grades is okay. You can redeem yourself. You have many chances. We're all students. We're all human. Mm. So, um, Mikhail, you said that your degree was in pharmacology, yes? Yes, queen. And my degree was in biology. And yet, one thing that Mikhail and I can say for certain that we didn't really expect is even though our degree wasn't in something like zoology, we saw a lot of snakes and we learned a lot about snake behavior. I usually identify as a Gryffindor, but let me tell you, there were some moments where I felt like I got into Slytherin because that shit was not cute, what some people did. So, speaking of snake behavior, um, this is something that will honestly, honestly happen to you in your university path at some point and this kind of snake behavior you'll see at multiple points in your life as well because guess what some snakes go on and work with you in your career life or you will find snakes absolutely everywhere and so I think that it's important to just sort of recognize it and a little bit laugh about it. Rima define to me what snake behavior is just quickly before we go on. Okay, so snake behavior is this toxic mentality that is harmful to other people, but more also self-preservation. So it's basically a behavior in which the person takes care of themselves, screws you over, and feels no remorse because, again, they are a reptile. Exactly. And that is that could be induced by many different things. They could be a bad person in general they could be a great person who's the pressures is influencing them but regardless of the reason of their acting there's these type of behaviors can hurt you as a student and you're standing in class so Rima and I finna play a quick game with y'all and with each other to help us learn how to identify snake behavior in our everyday life and because we're so tech savvy we're going to play the put a finger down trend uh, that we might have seen on TikTok. Absolutely. And we're going to try to do like audible cues because we know it's a podcast. So <laughs> we'll let y'all know when we have descended our digits into the palm of our hands. When my phalange is folded. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, dun -da -da -da. all right, put a finger down, snake edition. So put a finger down if your classmate forgot to send you notes right before the exam. Mm. Yes, the night before, crucial moment. 
Put a finger down if your classmate fed you wrong answers when you all were studying together. I've been in that situation, and the biggest tip I can provide is stop associating with that person throughout their classes because that kind of behavior is most likely not going to stop because that kind of person just cares for their own mark. Put a finger down if your classmate fell asleep at 8.30 p.m. the night before an exam or an assignment was due. If you have an assignment due the next day and your classmate fell asleep at 8.30 p.m. the night before and did not do their part, that's pure snake behavior. They're expecting you to do all the work for them. Hot tip, if you can email your prof right away, better to say that. Finish, your, finish their part, but make sure that your professor knows that that person does not deserve the credit. Put a finger down if your classmate had resources that helped them understand some of the content and didn't share them with you even though you were struggling and asked them for help. I put my finger down for that as well. If your classmate is aware that you are struggling and you made it clear that you are in need of help and they actively chose to not share it with you, it might be a sign that they are not really trying to be your friend and really are only caring for their own well standing in the class. Put a finger down if your friend stressed you out right before the final. That is definitely a finger downer. And let me tell y'all, it is a very stressful situation when a classmate is overhyping the importance of this exam to put you in an unstable state of mind. Stay away from that person and remember that it is just an exam. Okay, put a finger down if your classmate invalidated your stress or anxiety because they had more exams or assignments for other classes going on. I'm going to start taking off my socks and putting my toes down because this has definitely also occurred. We all have different stresses. We all have different courses. Just because we share the same class doesn't mean that someone's stressors are more important than the other. Doesn't mean it, Different degrees are not more important than the other. All stressors are valid. Period. Excellent. Put a finger down if your classmate indicated that maybe an 85% or any number wasn't a good mark and that people below that certain percentage were just stupid. That is really hard to deal with. Absolutely finger down. Whatever you set as the grade that you need is good enough, period. Don't let anybody else tell you what grade you need to get. The grade that you need to get is the grade that you need to get and you decide whether or not you are happy with it or if you need to put in some work to improve that grade. Put a finger down if the night before the exam or the morning before the exam, your friend or your classmate called you to talk about non-essential information or just to sort of fight about something out of context that wasn't necessary at that time. Finger down for that one as well. As friends in academia, we have to keep conscious that our life corresponds as friends and as academics. As friends and as academics, we need to consider the academic schedule of each other. And if you are aware that your friend is having an exam and maybe there is something that upset one of you, do not reach out before their exam. You can reach out in eight hours after they're done their exam and y'all can talk. 
But keep in mind that peace of mind before an exam is very important to doing well. If you're aware that your friend is having an exam, try to delay contacting them until they're done and are available to talk. So that concludes our put a finger down snake behavior edition. We're just going to say right off the bat that snake behavior is a very common thing that happens in university. What is important to remember is that while we all may experience this sort of snake behavior, either in university or in our personal lives, it's important to set our boundaries and to advocate for ourselves, which means that it's important that if you see someone who has these tendencies, who reaches out and tries to fight with you only before your exams, or who tries to make your life a little bit harder without being considerate of the academic load that you have, it's important to have conversations about that with them. It's important to stand up for yourself and say, hey, this is not the time to do this. Along with that, it's important to watch out for yourself. Because again, we want to represent our team properly. And if you're not on your own team, it's hard for other people to be on your team as well. So advocate and say, this behavior was not okay with me. Another thing that you could do is if you don't really want to confront these people, find a way in which you can get yourself out of that friend circle or out of that situation in general. Keep yourself safe. That's what matters. Another thing to remember is that snake behavior is going to occur regardless of where you are in your life. These were just examples in the university context, but things like this happen all the time. Core message, take care of yourself keep yourself safe. And if you find that you are one of the people that is doing some of these things that counts as snake behavior, look into that a little bit and try to stop. Try to find out why some of these things are not good and the harmful effects that they have on your friends and others. Because honestly, sometimes we do stuff because everyone else is doing it, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. So really, it's about becoming a better person and a better academic. Sometimes we can perform such behaviors because we're unaware that they're toxic it could be something that we saw other people do and we assume that's a normal type of behavior but we really just wanted to play this game to kind of bring some examples of different types of snake behavior sometimes we can catch ourselves performing and acting in such snake behaviors without even realizing that they were harmful to other peers around us so please just take a moment and reflect see if those have happened to you see if you've been in these type of situations and we'll all continue to grow and become better individuals academics and citizens just like Rima said so then comes the question of why do we care about snake behavior the reason that we care about snake behavior is because in one way or another it's going to impact our mental health Last time we talked a little bit about mental health, in which we said that the feelings of worthlessness can really affect our well-being. And this time we're going to go a little bit deeper into mental health, and we're going to do another put a finger down edition. So, put a finger down mental health edition. Let's go! Put a finger down if you've had sleep problems, whether too much or too little, because of university. My phalange is folded. Put a finger down if you skipped out on working out because of an overwhelming workload. My phalange is once again folded. Put a finger down if you lost contact with friends and family because you're just too busy. 
Again, another folded phalange. I'm folding my phalanges right here with you, sister. Put a finger down if you took a few extra shots just to let loose after an exam or during the semester. My phalange is folded because I took extra shots of espresso. And that wasn't to let loose, that was just to bring the life back into me. But I think it counts, so I'm folding my finger. <laughs> we are all familiar with espresso shots as students. Put a finger down if you question your self-worth and yourself in general because of uni results or your ability to adapt to university life. Um, so yeah, my, uh, most of my fingers are now down because I did this constantly. Found myself doing that as well. And the very last one, put a finger down if you felt very stressed but couldn't find the source of the stress. Yep. Um, that's my, that's all my fingers. I have now folded my arm. Um, <laughs> this is actually very common. Um, this is a thing that happens all the time uh, where I felt like I was stressed but I couldn't find the source of it because there was like nine things that I had to be stressed out about but I didn't know which one was causing this overwhelming feeling of stress. That's definitely a thing. We hope that you enjoyed that put a finger down section. Um, also, if you are listening to us while on your commute and you're sitting in a car or something and driving, when you play these put a finger down games with us, just for your safety, when you put that finger down, please wrap it around the steering wheel. Um, <laughs> we don't like the no hands game. Uh, so please, Look, please, Mom, please. <laughs> my knees. <laughs> Do not drive with your knees. <laughs> please. <laughs> Please don't four, drive four, with four. your knees. Uh-uh. <laughs> so the reason that we asked these particular questions was because we looked a little bit deeper and we looked at a survey study that was done on 1,530 students that were surveyed at the entry to university. And basically, 28% tested positive for depressive symptoms and 33% tested positive for anxiety symptoms. And these increased, so the 28% depressive symptoms went to 36% of students testing positive for depressive symptoms. And the 33% that tested positive for anxiety symptoms at the beginning of the year changed to 39% testing positive for anxiety symptoms at the completion of the first year. Entry to university can basically be a very stressful time. It can also be a very challenging time. So the researchers in the study did these surveys on first-year students just to see the effect of university on mental health, depressive symptoms, and anxiety symptoms. And what they found is that entry into university can add risk factors that lead to precipitated mental health disorders. So what that means is, if we are not properly taking care of ourselves, the university environment can put us at risk for developing mental health related disorders. And so some of the risk factors that university adds is sleep problems, lack of regular exercise, reduced social support, substance abuse, low self-esteem, and high perceived stress. Basically what happens is that university can add these risk factors into your life and these risk factors can create a situation where your mental health can decrease. The conclusions that the authors came to is that to improve mental health, we want to have a holistic approach. And what we found is that there are a lot of universities that are currently doing that. And so this was a study that was published a while ago, 
And it has been known for some time now that a holistic approach to mental health is required. You can't just change one thing and improve the overall mental health of students. And so what universities have been doing is introducing programs for mental health, for recognizing symptoms or recognizing where our mental health is at, and then also various free services that students may use to improve their mental health. So the main takeaway from the Put a Finger Down Mental Health Edition, and also looking at this particular study, is that we want to be aware of what is happening in our lives. We want to be aware of where our mental health is at, and we want to be aware of the resources that are available to us. We will go into, in future episodes, other resources that are available at different universities and different places that we can reach out if we require any help for our mental health or for improving it. So in order to keep up with our mental health and really stay aware and cognizant of the different effects the universities can have on our well-being, it definitely comes to identifying the proper resources the university has to offer for us as students. So the main takeaway from this is that university inadvertently, one way or another, impacts our mental health. And whether that be because of things that are happening to us in university or the fact that we have university and then the rest of our lives going on as well. And so in future episodes, we will highlight various resources either offered by universities or the community that can help with mental health and that can guide you along in your journey with mental health. Absolutely. It is okay to take care of yourself. It is okay to not feel okay. So... Whenever possible, take a second to check up on your friends. Sometimes it doesn't have to be starting a whole conversation with the heavy, how are you? But even just send them a meme, make sure that they are doing okay. We all in this together. And that being said, on our Instagram page, we will have a lot of different resources and a lot of different self-care tips that we'll be going over. And so we encourage you to share some of the ways that you take care of yourself after a busy week or after uh, going through a lot of stuff. And we're hoping that we can use that and post it to create that community, to share these self-care tips. Because ultimately, the big brain path is only worth it if we're healthy and we're happy and we're enjoying it. And we'll also make sure to ask y'all about your stories so we can share them on the podcast just like we share our own stories. Stories of perseverance, some funny stories, some good memories. If we make it fun, it'll go by easier and we'll be able to really bond over it at the end of the day. So it's gonna be hype! Thank you, Mikhail, for sharing some of those study tips and for sharing some of the experiences that you had during university. I'm absolutely glad to be able to share them. And I want to thank you as well, Reba, for sharing your stories, some amazing stats and really great tips about surviving that university admittance life. And thank you everyone for joining us and being a part of the conversation. We hope your temporal lobes are fully stimulated at this point. And we wish wish you you the the best best in your your big brain path. path.